Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 22, please. When, when Wesley was trying to persuade people not to change the lyrics of his hymns, he kind of gently suggested that one of the reasons they shouldn't is because they probably can't improve on it. <laughs> so, and when you, when you sing hymns like that, you see just how wonderful his lyrics are. It's like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> Let's not change his stuff. Well, Genesis 22. Let me get right to the point and, and take you to the heart of the passage. You know the story. I won't belabor the details. I'll just remind you that uh, in verse 14, this is the, really the heart and soul of the passage. So Abraham called the name of that place. Uh, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided that's what the passage is all about. That's the heart of it. The great focus is not uh, the testing of Abraham, although that testing is instructive and we can learn from Abraham's conduct. Uh, but the heart of the passage is in that verse, in verse 14. Jehovah Jireh. We sing about Jehovah Jireh. The heart of the passage is that the Lord will provide. And when Abraham walked... Uh, the 70K back to his home, uh, this was his takeaway. Uh, this is what he learned. He walked away sure of this, that the Lord will provide. And I suggest that if we can learn the same lesson again, because we have to learn lessons again and again, if we can walk away from this sermon with that same confidence, if we can walk into the, the week that lies before us with that same assurance that the Lord will provide, then we will know more and more of the peace of God that passes understanding. And if we can walk away with this assurance that the Lord will provide, we will understand, I think, more profoundly what Christmas is all about. Because there's a sense in which we might have another name for Christmas. We might say this is the, the Lord will provide time of the year when we're reminded about just how extraordinarily and wonderfully and completely the Lord has fulfilled His promises and provided as He had promised down through the centuries. So then, let's think about Genesis 22 and keep in mind the heart of the passage. And I want to begin by thinking about the testing of God. The testing of God. We read in verses 1 and 2, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So this is the testing of God. It's the testing that comes from God. And uh, we know from the Holy Scriptures that God doesn't tempt us, but God does most certainly test us. We read in James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, or rather verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you need... 
when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's verses 2 to, two to 4. And then verse 13 says, I'll read from verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God does not tempt with evil. He himself tempts no one. And so James is talking about the fact that God tempt, tests, but he doesn't tempt us. In verse 2, James talks about the fact that trials come our way. And then in verse 13, he says, you're never tempted by God, but it's the same word in both cases. In verse 2, it's translated trials or testings. In verse 13, it's translated tempting. And the fact of the matter is that God is at work in a situation to test us. And the devil is at work often in the same situation to tempt us. You can think, for instance, of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, as he refers to the thorn in the flesh that he describes but doesn't define. And in the same situation with that same thorn, the devil wants to tempt him and God wants to test him. And when the devil tempts, he tempts us so that we might fall. In the same situation, God tests us and he tests us so that we might grow. Well, here in this situation, God is at work. And God, we are told, is testing Abraham. Well, God tests Abraham for at least two reasons. The devil, well, we know what his kinds of purposes are. But we're focusing here on God's purpose in this situation. And God tests Abraham for at least two reasons. He tests Abraham so that he might know something about himself. God tests Abraham so that Abraham might know something about himself. Look at verse 12. In verse 12 we read, now this is after Abraham is he's ready to sacrifice his son, and God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Well, of course, God already knew what Abraham was like. God looks not on the outside, but on the inside. And God knows where Abraham's heart is. And God knows the state of his faith and the state of his obedience. And so God knows all about Abraham. And he says, I test you so that I might know. But he knew he wants Abraham to know. That's the thing. He wants Abraham to see he wants Abraham to understand the state of his own heart. Many times we do not understand the state of our own heart. And God wanted this acted out in time and space so that Abraham might know. And so that you and I might know about Abraham. And so that we might be able to understand uh, the state of his heart. God tests Abraham so that Abraham might know the state of his own heart so that he might praise God. Because if there's anything good in Abraham, if there's faith in him, if there's obedience being acted out, what's the root cause of that? Well, it's the grace of God. And so Abraham would be moved to praise God. 
And so God tests him so that he might know and see uh, the good that is being worked in him, the obedience that is there, the grace that is active. Sometimes God works so that we might see and know and understand our sin. We need to embrace that as well and recognize that here is something that is, uh, that is wicked in the eyes of God and we need to accept responsibility for that. And we need to repent of that and we need to turn by the grace of God from that. And so God brings these tests along so that we might see what is inside, so that we might learn about the state of our hearts. And we pray for grace so that when we are shown our sin, we would change. And we thank God that when we see some good in us that is being worked by grace, we're moved to praise, even as Abraham would have been. And God wants to show Abraham the state of his heart and show us as well. And so there we we come to Hebrews chapter 11 and we see Abraham set before us. And this incident is mentioned. And this incident is given as an example of of Abraham's faith, as an example of Abraham's, uh, the, the grace that God has at work in him. And Abraham then is a light shining as an example to us. Why did God do this? Well, so that Abraham might know, so that we might know and follow his example. But we also know that God tests him so that he might learn something about God. And this is the bigger lesson. It's one thing to learn about ourselves. It's a better lesson to learn about God. And you come to verse 14 again. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And so verse 14 shows us that the test was successful. I mean, he learned something. And he understood that God is Jehovah Jireh. Learned something about the Lord. And he walked away with a deeper, a better, a broader understanding of the nature of God. And this wonderful truth, this glorious reality that our God is a God who provides for us. And so Abraham benefited from this testing And as we think about that, that Abraham benefited, he grew as a result of his testing, I want to encourage you. And I want to urge you and encourage myself and urge me to benefit from testing. God's always going to be testing us. He's always going to bring situations along to test us. And I want to encourage you so that, well, so that you'll benefit from that. You need to ask the Lord, what do you... What are you teaching me through this? What do you want me to learn from this? It doesn't have to be something elaborate, some grand and and awful and horrific testing. It might be something small. God uses all kinds of things to test and try us. You want to ask the Lord, what are you trying to teach me through this? What am I to learn from this? What am I to learn about you through this? You know, we have to understand that that testing and, and suffering aren't automatically something positive for us. We don't automatically benefit from it. Sometimes testing comes and, and tri- trials uh, come into our, our lives and we end up being hardened or we, we end up drifting from God. That kind of thing can happen as well. And so we have to be very careful that when God does test us, that we benefit from it. 
And so we ask the Lord then, what are you trying to show me? Oh, you're trying to show me that you are Jehovah Jireh or some lesson equally wonderful like that. So I can ask you a slightly different question. Have you learned the lesson that Abraham learned? I mean, have you learned that God is Jehovah Jireh? Have you learned that the Lord will provide? Do you go into the coming week with with that kind of assurance? Do you face the circumstances of your life with that kind of conviction? My God, the God whom I serve, the God who looks after me every day, He's the God who will provide. I'm not confident in my own strength. I'm not sure about the state of the economy. I'm not confident about the the kind of government that we have. The state of the world scares the life out of me. But I know the Lord will provide. Is that the kind of attitude that you have as you live your life in this world? Because you've learned from testings and through the Scriptures, you learned what Abraham learned. The Lord will provide. Or you see, that's the testing of God. Now, secondly, let's think about the sufficiency of God, the sufficiency of God. This must have been a test of unspeakable difficulty. Go and take your son, God says. You see it in verse 2. This is the child of the promise. You see, God is going to bless through this child. God is going to bless all the families of the earth through this child. It's going to be through Abraham. He's going to bless all the families of the earth. But he has to have that son so the line can continue. So it, it has to be through, uh, through Isaac. It has to be through the son. And Isaac then is crucial to the fulfilling of the promise. And so this command then that we read about in verse 2 is just a confusing and a confounding and rather an extraordinary command. Go and take your son. There are uh, dagger blows. Take your son. This is not just any person. That would be difficult enough, but it's your son. And take your only son. Take your unique son, your, your one-of-a-kind son. Take that one and take Son you love. Imagine that. So this is a death sentence on Isaac. And it's a death sentence that's to be carried out by his father. It's absolutely extraordinary. Our familiarity with with the narrative should not dim our minds to the awfulness of hearing those words for Abraham. I think it was in a, in a Reader's Digest I read about a man who heard a knock at his door and opened the door and there were two policemen standing there who told him that his daughter had been killed in a car accident. And he attempted to describe for the reader what it was like to hear that his daughter had been killed in a car accident. And he said two things that I'll never forget. He said, he said, first, you can't breathe. And then he said, second, you don't want to breathe. So a man comes to the door, 
and tells you your child is dead. So God came to Abraham and said, your son is dead. And you're going to kill him. I cannot imagine what that was like. And so you ask yourself, well, now how, how do you cope with that? What kind of night was it for Abraham before he left in the morning? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, and it is ludicrous to try and speculate. But we can ask ourselves, how do we cope when, when we don't understand? How do we cope when God does things that make us scratch our heads? How do we cope when God turns our world upside down? When it just, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So what do you do? So Abraham doesn't quite understand what God is doing, and he would have understood what William Cooper wrote later. He plants his footsteps in the sea. What does a believer do when... He doesn't understand the purposes of God when he doesn't understand the rhyme or the reason of the direction God is taking him and the circumstances that God has ordained for him. What do you do when you don't get it? What you do is you cling to what you know of God. It's always the case that when you are confused about everything, there are certain things you know about God. And you cling to that. Well, that's what Abraham did. So what did he know about God? Well, the first thing he knew about God is that God is to be obeyed. It's not so much an attribute of God, but it's given the fact that he is God, he's to be obeyed. He's to be obeyed without question. He's to be obeyed even when you're confused. He's to be obeyed even when what he says is to you counterintuitive. You just obey God. And the scripture draws a curtain over what might have happened during the night with Abraham and whatever wrestlings he might have had to endure and the agony he might have probably did experience. The Bible draws a curtain over that. That's none of our business. What we need to learn is that extraordinarily enough, he he obeyed. He just did what God said. Well, you say, he didn't actually do it, did he? Well, yes and no. I just turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You know that uh, Abraham is mentioned, of course, in Hebrews chapter 11, and you know that this particular incident is referred to in verse 17 and following. So Hebrews 11, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received, Uh, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so in verse 11 it says that uh, he was tested and he offered up Isaac. So Abraham was tested by God and he offered up Isaac. And so the tense of that verb, offered, indicates that for Abraham, it had already happened. You know, sometimes the the tense of the words 
Jesus uses or what we read in the New Testament. Uh, he, he had, God was glorified. Well, he was talking about the cross, but he used the past tense. Or Paul in Romans, Romans 8 says that we've been glorified. Use the past tense. Why is that? Well, because it's already, it's as good as done. It's so sure a thing, it's as good as done. And so Abraham offered up Isaac. In his mind, he had already done it. He had reconciled himself to it. He had determined that he would do it. It's as good as done. And so in a very real sense, although he didn't actually do it, he actually did do it. And so it's extraordinary obedience. It's a remarkable obedience. It's the kind of thing that the Lord Jesus demands of all of us, demands of his people. Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's not saying hate your parents and hate your siblings and hate the people that love you and treat them hatefully. He's not saying that. He's saying that compared to your devotion to God, your devotion to them is like hatred. Because you are supremely a disciple of Christ. And he has your devotion. And he claims your obedience. Above all else. Absolutely astounding. And you see, that's the kind of obedience we know from the Christmas story, the the infancy narratives in the Gospels, we know that that's the kind of obedience that Mary offered to the Lord. That's the kind of obedience that we see in Mary's life. And so we know from Luke 138, when she hears what is going to happen, and she hears about a virgin conception, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And that's astounding. There's a hymn that... Um, that says with reference to Mary, thus or then the spirit of the highest to a virgin meek came down and burdened her with blessing and pained her with renown. For she bore the Lord's anointed for his cross and for his crown. And you see the poet says he burdened her with blessing and pained her with renown because The news arrives, and it is, make no mistake of it, absolutely astounding and a privilege that is unequaled. And she will carry the Lord Jesus in her womb, but she is burdened with blessing and pained with renown because it will not be an easy path. And despite the fact that she must have realized immediately that this will not be an easy path, She says, let it be to me according to your word. That's astounding obedience. That's Abraham kind of obedience. It's also the kind of obedience that marks Joseph. We must never underestimate Joseph's obedience. Take her to be your wife. Just keep going. You want to put her aside privately, and that's a gracious thing we understand. But God says, no, no. You just keep going, and he does. 
And God says, eventually, take her and the baby to Egypt. And he does so. And then God says, bring her and the baby back to the land. And he does so. He does exactly what... This is typical for Joseph, just to obey God. It's not a small thing to say, oh, go to Egypt. Let's go to Egypt. It's not a small thing to stay with Mary. Obedience. We are surrounded by... Christians who are examples of wonderful obedience. I give you the example of, um, of Adoniram Judson and Adoniram Judson's father-in-law. Uh, Judson be a missionary and um, he wants to marry a woman named Anne Hasseltine and she, uh, she wants to marry him, but if they get married, they're going to go to the Far East. So he writes to her, her father, and he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to, be, to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of lack and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory because you're probably not going to see her again in this life? with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means for eternal, from eternal woe and despair. Can you consent to this? Oh. And, and he did. Extraordinary obedience. You know, and I've often wondered many a time about what if, what if God... What if God takes me away from kith and kin, as they say, you know. I want you to go away from your family and go to, what, outer Mongolia? Go to Timbuktu? Go and serve there? Never see your family again, ever? I th thought about that a lot over the years. I have no great confidence what I would say. Because this is extraordinary obedience. You know, we should be very sympathetic with missionaries. We should be very sympathetic. There's no small thing for them to go far away from those they love. God is to be obeyed. I don't understand a lot about what's going on, Abraham might have said. I just don't get it. But what's clear is this. What I know is this. God is a God who's not to be trifled with. And when God says something, you do it. Obey him like the angels do in heaven. God's to be, is to be obeyed. The second thing he knew, God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted. That's so remarkable about this man is that he trusted God. He trusted God to do the impossible. He trusted God in the face of something that he just didn't understand. I wonder if you and I trust God in the face of the impossible. 
there are people that we love and we want them to come to Christ, but it just doesn't seem as if it's possible. I mean, humanly speaking, knowing what we know about how they think and what their hearts seem to be like and how spiritually intransigent they are, we just think, oh, my goodness. Well, we don't say the words, but we feel in our souls this can never happen. Do we trust God? Do we trust God when the mountain that confronts us seems to be a mountain that just cannot be scaled? Do we trust God when it seems as if we can't handle this? We really can't cope. Do we trust God to help us, to strengthen us, to carry us through? When you have time, you can read Romans 4, 16 to 21. We don't have time right now. But you know that Abraham trusted God about the birth of the boy. So will he trust God now when it comes to the death of the boy? It's remarkable that he trusted God with regard to the birth of the boy because, you know, I'm as good as dead, he says. So is my wife. But he trusted God with regard to the birth. Would he trust God God with regard to the boy? Well, it seems he did. It seems that he did trust God with regard to what seems to be, in a confounding way, the death of this boy, the, the child of promise. Well, he trusted God because he said, we're going to come back. We're going to go over here. You stay there. We're going to go here, and we'll come back to We will come back to you. So he seems to have trusted God with regard to the death of the boy. And he says in verse 8, he says to the boy, the Lord will provide. And he confirms that later on in the passage. I don't know how. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I know the Lord will provide. He really trusted God. It's astounding. And we read in Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. I didn't read verse 19, but in verse 19 it says that Abraham realized, well, the boy's got to survive. So he, he reasoned, he reckoned that God must be able to raise the boy from the dead. If I have to kill him, I'll do what I'm commanded to do. But God will then clearly raise him from the dead. There's no precedent for that in biblical history. But somehow he figured that out. He, he knew enough about God. He knows God created everything. God gives life. God can raise him to life. He, he trusted God. It's astounding. See, his dilemma is that the blessing must come from the Son. But the command is that the Son must die. And both words come from God. And so he says, well, God must be able to do the impossible. Abraham, really in a sense, knew that God, in order to provide later, he had to provide now. In order to provide the Messiah who would bless all the nations of the world, he had to somehow provide now with regard to the one who would be his ancestor. It's absolutely wonderful faith. Abraham trusted God so that he believed that God would provide now as I go to the mountain. I know God's going to provide now. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Yes, but God's the God of the impossible. And he must provide now so that, you know, he'll provide later. For Isaac to be the ancestor of the Messiah, he's got to survive and so that uh, Jesus can be the descendant of Isaiah, um, Isaac's got to survive and then God provides through him for all the nations of the world. Abraham trusted God. Mary trusted God. One writer says with regard to Mary, 
Questions must have swirled. So the announcement comes. Questions must have swirled. You know how you can create a narrative in your mind when you hear something? Somebody says something, and all of a sudden, you know, you've created a world, and it's terrible, and, you've, and you're all depressed. Because if that's true, then this will happen, and that will happen, and that will happen, and then we'll be in a mess. We create these things in our heads, and we do it in a nanosecond. Well, questions, he says, must have swirled in Mary's head. How? How am I going to explain this? Well, an angel came. Well, it was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's just... (laughs) That's a difficult pill to swallow. So he says, the questions must have swirled, but the posture of her soul was beautiful. Because the posture of her soul says this, I am the servant of God, so I trust him. That's amazing. You and I also then need to trust God for the impossible, for that person that when I asked earlier about someone that you want to see saved and it seems impossible, that person, you need to trust the Lord. You need to be sure that And you can continually commend that soul to him. Sometimes, you know, we think we, think we genuinely can't keep going. Sometimes we feel that the situation is just, just too difficult. And then we're supposed to trust him. And, you know, it, it's really important to know that there is a rational element to trusting. It's not just, you know, grit your teeth, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to have faith. That's the way people in the world think. You just got to have faith. And what they mean is you got to just have some kind of vague, contentless conviction that everything is going to turn out well. I just, I just, I just believe it. Well, that's crazy. But that's not biblical faith. If you, if you were to go to, to Hebrews eleven nineteen, you'll see the word there. Uh, it's translated reckoned or reasoned or considered. So Abraham considered. This is what he did here. He considered, well, God is who God is. I'm called to do this. The boy is supposed to die, but he's also the child of promise. So therefore... God, who I know is all-powerful, God must then be able to raise him. And he figured this out in his head. He reasoned this through. He didn't just feel. He figured it out. You know, we need to reason. So, well, now, yes, I, I know this is tough, but, okay, what do I know about God? I know this, and I know this, and I know that. And then, therefore, the, the Greek word that's used in Hebrews eleven nineteen is the word logizomai, Logic, reason, it's, it's a word that, that means to, to sort of to put things in order, to figure, to weigh things. I, on this side is this, and on that side is this. You weigh, figure things out like that. You think things through. And that's what Abraham did here, Hebrews tells us. 
And so if, we, if you want to trust God, you know, think about what the Bible says. Listen to what God said earlier. Be familiar with, with the Bible. And in the Bible, God is like this. Well, in light of that, therefore this. Because our God is to be trusted. I'll have to really move along here. So it's the, the testing of God and the, and the what it, what's this title? Oh, the sufficiency. Thank you. Wow, people are listening. Hey? Isn't that excellent? But now, actually, what's the main point is the third one. So I'm going to have to rush through this. The provision of God. And this is the heart and the soul of it. So when Abraham walks away, he doesn't lament and he doesn't say, well, now this was, this was pointless and this was uh, aimless and this was for no particular reason. He walks away with a joyous acknowledgement that the Lord will provide. So how does the Lord provide? Well, the Lord provides in at least two ways. First of all, he provides a ram. And so you look at verse 8, and then you look at verses 13 and 14, and so God provided a ram, a male sheep, and he provided that so that Isaac would not have to die. He provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac. And he provides that on Mount Moriah. That's significant. So the first thing in terms of God's provision is he provides a ram. The second thing is that God provides a lamb. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist would later say, pointing to Jesus and designating him the Lamb that God provides to take away the sin of the world. In John 8, 56, we read this. Just turn for a second to John 8, 56. Extraordinary verse about, well, about, uh, about Abraham and about the Lord Jesus. John 8, 56 your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And so Abraham saw Jesus' day and he was glad and he rejoiced. So I have no doubt that of all the days that Abraham lived, there was no day on which he learned more about the coming Messiah than on this day. Because this incident would have taught him an enormous amount about how God ultimately was going to provide for the sins of his people and for the salvation of his elect. In Romans 8.32, it says that God did not spare his only begotten son. On Mount Moriah, God spared Abraham's only begotten son. But on Calvary, he did not spare his own son. God provided a ram so that Isaac would not have to die. But God took his own son on Calvary, and he did die. So how did God provide? He provided a ram, and then he provides a lamb. Let me just give you very quickly the, some of the various elements of God's provision. God provided a baby. That's what we celebrate, but it's all part of this tremendous plan. This focus in these days on the baby needs to be understood in light of the large picture. It's this massive, grand plan of God. Part of it is that he provided a baby, an extraordinary baby. When Benjamin Warfield said, the glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze 
not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God, a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, one on whose almighty arm we can rest and one to whose human sympathy we can appeal. So God provides a baby and then God provides a substitute because this baby will grow and he will become a substitute for his people. The idea of substitution is part of the warp and the woof of, of the scriptural teaching. You can go back to the, oh, the Day of the Atonement. You can look at all the sacrificial, uh, uh, the, the sacrificial rituals that are mandated in the Old Testament. You can think about Passover. Remember that um, Josephus said that when Passover happens, about 250,000 sheep are killed. I mean, the, the streets of Jerusalem run red. And it's at Passover then that Jesus is crucified. Because the Lamb has come. God has provided a substitute. All of the sacrificial system, the day of the... It was all picturing someone needs to stand in our room instead. Someone needs to take our place. And that's what Jesus did. Horatius Bonner says, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I staked my whole eternity. And so God provided a son, and God provided a substitute, and God provided on Mount Moriah. Second Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, so when Abraham was there, it was barren, and, and then Jebus was established, and then Jerusalem was established there, and then the temple was built there, and then finally Jesus sets his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem, and there, in that region where Abraham was, his son was spared, the Son of God was not. And so God provided on Mount Moriah, where Abraham said, the Lord will provide, the Lord actually did provided his son. And then the Lord provided a son. He provided a baby and a substitute. He did it on Mount Moriah and he provided a son. Who was the substitute? He was the only begotten of God. He was God's one and only. Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son, but he was his one and only son. He was his unique son. Ishmael was not Isaac. His one and only. His beloved. And God has one son. He has many children. Some of them are here. But he has one son. And he sacrificed him. And the testing and the sufficiency, and God's provision. Two responses, actually one, but two parts to it. Fundamentally, the, the response is praise. When, when the elders were meeting earlier before the service, as we generally do, Roger prayed that we would be moved to praise. Well, it, it, in light of all this, you should praise God. He said, praise because he has provided for your greatest need. Your greatest need, bar none, 
is to be saved from sin and rescued from wrath. You need a Savior. If you're not a Christian, that's your greatest need. You might have many other things you think you need more, but you're wrong. You need to be saved from sin. You need to have someone take your place, bear the punishment, go to hell for you. That's what you need. That's your greatest need. Jesus has come to save you. You should believe in him. And then you'll join us to praise God that God has met our greatest need. And we pray God will meet today your greatest need. So praise God that he's met your greatest need. He's provided for your greatest need. And then also he's provided for your every need. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us what? All things? All things. Give us all things. In everything that happens to you, God is providing that which you need. All the circumstances of your life are being worked for your good and for his glory. What a wonderful position it is then to be a Christian, to know that God has provided for our greatest need and God is providing for our every need. It's wonderful to be a Christian. Wonderful to have a Savior like Jesus. Most of us here, that's true of us. Our prayer is that today, it'll be true of you as well. Let's pray. Gracious God and Savior, our gracious God and Savior, bless us. Bless your word to us. Bless the gospel of Christ in this place and around the world. We pray for Jesus' sake.